It reminds me that the Lord said, uh, allow the little children to come to him and don't hinder them. And that's a good outreach to kids. And it's not too early to start thinking about it. We have a room back here dedicated to store items, and there's a list on the door of the kind of things you can bring. So be thinking about Operation Christmas Child and look for things that would that would help. Well, you know, it's such a quiet morning. It's rainy outside. When I came out early, it was just a nice little drizzle, and I told Myrna, what a lovely spring rain. And then moments later, it's buckets, you know, it's, uh, and wasn't so lovely. But, but uh, the Lord knows we need to rain. And so I think you ought to stand up and say hello to at least ten people. Surely you can find that many. Hi, John. How you doing? Yeah. I'm used to it, John. (laughs) Yeah. Good morning. Good morning, Daryl. Thank you. We are continuing in our study through 1 Timothy for the summer, and we have come to part four. And it is probably the most difficult section of the entire book. In fact, one of the most difficult sections in the entire Bible. And before we finish, you will see why. We're at uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And I titled it, The Church is About Men, Women, and Worship. Because I think that this whole section is really talking about worship. Let me just remind you of something. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says this. He's writing to Timothy. He's given him all these instructions about the church at Ephesus. And he said in chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how you ought to behave or conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so he's writing these things to Timothy that he can help in the oversight of the church at Ephesus and seeing that the church is ordered right. And and that's really the reason for the letter is to help him to, to oversee the church. You know, I picked this section this morning that we're going to have because I'm already old and I already only have a few years left to live. So uh, I didn't want one of these young guys to have to face this passage and they have to be with you for a lot more years than I do. So I took this section. I'd say that just tongue in cheek, but this, this is a difficult section and it is so counterculture. It's counter to everything that we hear around us. 
and so you'll see why as we get into it. You know, I, I have a couple comments to preface before we get started. And listen, listen carefully, because as we go through this, this becomes important. When, when we're studying Scripture, the first is that context is really important. To understand the context and then the historical background of what we're reading. And I think that's important in this section. Now, we're not going to explain it all away in a historical background, but it's important to know what was happening there. And the second is this, and this is really important, is that clear teaching helps us to understand unclear teaching. Because sometimes you get into something that's just really hard to understand. And there's one section today that I worked on it all week, and I'm not sure I have the answer on it. And I'm willing to, to be transparent and show you that. But we have clear teaching to show what it doesn't say and also to give us a hint of what it does say. So clear teaching helps to clear up anything that's obscure, that's difficult, right? Okay, the third thing is this. We need to use caution in picking and choosing what we apply out of a passage because of some personal agenda. We do have personal agendas. And sometimes we can go into the scripture And we can pull out those things that we really want to hear and ignore those things that maybe we're not so excited about hearing. So we need to be careful how how we apply Scripture. Then the fourth thing is this, and this is also very important, I believe, is that we cannot allow the winds of current culture to determine what we believe and do. Because culture changes all the time. And we can't allow what, what is popular in pop culture today to determine what we do as Christ church. Then lastly, this is that there's a place to exercise love, charity, grace when others disagree. And I, I think that's important, too. Sometimes... Over the years, I've seen this, and I've seen it in myself and others, and you see if this resonates with you. Sometimes when we are the harshest towards someone who disagrees, it's because we're really not all that confident in what we're saying. You understand what I'm saying? Is that sometimes we're afraid that they might have a nugget of truth, so we shout a little louder and we push a little harder. And what we really want to know is exactly what God intends, isn't it? Isn't that why we're here today? Don't don't we want to know what the Lord wants for us? What's he intend? What's he intend for us to understand out of this? And so uh, we're we're not going to overreact one way or the other. That's a great tendency in mankind. Years ago, I went to a little church in Norton, brand new church. It was called Sherman Baptist Church. And they were meeting in a school at that time. And I filled in a few times. This is one of our earliest ministries. And I spoke on, I think it was this passage, or it could have been 1 Corinthians 14, that Sunday morning. And afterward, one of the elderly gentlemen in the congregation come up to me. He said, you are a brave man. And then I heard him, I think, say as he walked away, are really stupid. Uh, And so uh, 
I don't think I'm either. I, I, I may really be stupid. You'll have to decide that. But, but I don't think you have to be brave because we're just working through First Timothy. And we've come to verse 8 and following, right? So whatever it says is what, what we want to know, uh, regardless of what that older gentleman might have thought that day. The church is about worship, about men, and about women. Why don't we pray before we read? Lord, we want to be faithful to your truth. We want to agree with you in every way. We want to understand what you have for us and how to order your church. And Lord, we want to do it with the grace and love that you've shown to us. So help us, we pray. Help the messenger. Lord, do nothing more than that. Lord, help that the thoughts are clear and that nothing is spoken apart from your spirit and your word. And Lord, we thank you for this, and to this end we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I think that just based on the verses we read, that Paul writing to Timothy and saying, this is the way you need to order the church. This is the way the church should function. I think that all of this section is talking about public worship. There are... There are some things that cross over into private life, but keep that in the back of your mind as we read. And let's start, uh, Dee wrote a, read a couple of these verses, but let's start at 8 and just read down through the end of chapter 2. <coughs> I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And let me just pause there long enough on 13 to say this. Um, Don't take from that that women are more easily deceived. I've heard that application made. And, And I don't believe that for a minute. And I don't believe that's what he's saying. That women are more easily deceived than men. Some men are really easy to deceive. Really easy to trick. And some women are just really good at discernment. That's not what he's saying. He's simply going back to history, and he's calling back what happened in the garden. On to verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And that last verse is the one that will stick on at the end because that's a tough one. That's a really tough verse. What's it mean? And there's no real agreement. So let's start with the role of men in worship. Verse 8. I desire then in every place, would start there, what is being said here is true of all churches, right? I mean, he's saying this is a universal application And I desire that wherever we are in the church called Wellspring 
in a Lance, Ohio at uh, Carnation Mall or whether you're in the church at Ephesus, wherever you are, that what I'm going to say is applicable. And so it's everywhere, all times, all cultures, all ages, whatever it is said, right? All right, so then he goes on and he says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray. Now, there are times in Scripture when the word is translated men and it's anthropos, which is from, we, we get lots of words from that, and it means mankind. It can refer to men, to women, but it's mankind in general. That's not the word used here. Uh, the word here is a word that is very specific, and it means men pray. Uh, the, the word is not one that I'm familiar with that I could pronounce necessarily, but it's, it's anyar, or A-N-A-Y-R is the way it would be pronounced. But that word is never used of a female. It's used, it's gender specific, and it's used of a man. So the second thing out of this is that whatever's said here in this passage is being said of men, not being said of women. Okay, you with me? All right, so two things. It's everywhere. It's a universal principle. And secondly, that he's talking to men. Then the third thing he says, that men should pray. Now, I believe he's talking about a public prayer of leadership. And I believe that because of the context of what's being written here. That men should pray. And then notice that he says that they should pray uh, with lifted holy hands. Now, let's talk about that for a couple minutes. Um, I'll just say first that most men are not very good at praying. Men are a lot better at doing than they are praying. Uh, prayer is unnatural to us. We want to exercise our manliness. And we don't necessarily want to ask God for anything. We want to do it, right? And, and that's our tendency. And, and this is a direct instruction to men. Pray. And not only men pray, but he says pray with, with holy hands. Uh, with, and and let's, let's think about that for a minute. Is the emphasis on posture that we lift our holy hands to the Lord? You know, in their culture it was common, and you've seen pictures of it, where people when they prayed, they prayed looking into heaven. And they prayed with their palms up. As though they're waiting, I think it's both a sign of submission and waiting for the Lord to respond and putting something in those hands. And so it, it, was, it was a cultural thing where they, they held their, their heads up, they held their hands up, and that's the way they prayed. How do we pray, usually? We pray with our, with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, don't we? And I, many times we'll say to people, Bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray. Well, that's not necessary. <laughs> that's not necessary at all. If you want to pray with your hands up and your head up, then pray that way. The important thing about this is the focus. Is the focus is on the Lord. And if it's easier for you to focus with your head raised to heaven, sometimes it is. Have you ever prayed that way? Sometimes it's good to look up, to recognize the vastness of the Lord. And just to identify with him and who you're praying to. If you want to pray that way when we pray, it's fine. 
If you want to raise your hands to the Lord when we pray, that's fine. If you want to bow your head and help it maybe signify that you're bowing your heart, that's fine. It's not the posture that's important here. The important part of this instruction is men pray, right? Everywhere, all over the place, men pray. So uh, men should pray. And then the last part of it says, without anger or quarreling. Different translations will use different words there. How in the world can you seek God if you're angry? How can I seek God if, if Paul and I are fighting? We're fighting over the Cavs and Warriors this week. And uh, incidentally, in case you didn't notice, Paul, the Warriors won. I had to rub that in just a little bit. Okay, we'll move past it. But, but we're fighting over something. How can I go to the Lord and pray if I'm arguing and quarreling with someone? I can't. So I've got to start by confessing that and say, God, help me. Remove that from me. So that's the starting point of the men's prayer. So you can't pray. And there may even be a local implication to this praying. Maybe there was a problem with the many problems that were in the church at Ephesus that some of the guys were stepping up and they were pretty upset with somebody else and their prayers indicated it. You know what I mean? Maybe they were praying, God, judge that guy. Judge that Paul, you know. Uh, for being a Cavs fan, you know, something like that. But they were praying some, something about someone, and, and that could have been the case. But whatever the case, you can't pray with anger. Now we come to the more difficult part, the role of women in worship. So far, that was pretty easy. Uh, that's not the sum total of teaching of the role of men in worship, but it's an important instruction in this context. And it's important that men pray. Now let's look at, at women. And why in the world all the emphasis on women's clothing? Women should not adorn themselves in, in uh, certain types of clothing. Why in the world is that? Is that just a local problem? Was that just a problem in their church, as some would suggest, that in the church at Ephesus, some have said that because the temple of Diana or Artemis was there and because the temple had uh, street walkers, prostitutes that were part of it, that was part of the worship. Uh, and because these women dressed in, a, in an unseemly way, immodest way, that he was talking to this church about that. Well, that may be true. And maybe some of these women came to faith and they were coming in in the same clothing that they walked the streets in. And he's saying, wait a minute, that's not the case. And it probably is true about it, but there's something much more universal in a principle here. Uh, it was a local problem. Some have also suggested that some of the Jewish women who came to faith in Christ were people of resources and money. And, and they were people of high stature. And so when they came into church, they dressed like it. They were dressing to the T's. You know, they had all of the adornment of wonderful uh, gold in their hair. And incidentally, they're, they're not saying don't braid your hair. That's not the idea. The idea is to do the hair in such a way that it calls attention 
and maybe with gold or pearls or something woven in it. it and in fact, the King James used the word broided, I believe, instead of braided. But it's the idea of weaving something that would be extraordinary, unusual, expensive, and that that's important. It's not important whether or not ladies braid their hair. If, uh, if I had enough hair, I might braid it. I don't know. But uh, you can braid your hair just fine. Uh, the key to this passage, and I think you know it, is that modesty is important. How do you define modesty? You don't do it by culture. You don't do it by Vogue magazine. And you do not do it by watching TV. That's not the way we define modesty. Uh, we define modesty as God would define modesty. And let me just pause for a second and say something. Ladies, are you, do you love me? Can you love me enough to listen to this? Uh, if a lady gets up and gets dressed and she walks to the mirror and says, that'll knock the guys dead, you probably ought to change clothes, right? If you're saying, that'll turn their heads, you know, because you can, you know you can, then, then probably you should change your clothes, right? And I think that's what he's calling for here. Uh, he's calling for women to adorn themselves in a way that they can look to the Lord and say, God, I want this to please you. I'm going to do this in submission to you. And, and apart from my husband, I'm not dressing that way in public. You know, men can be distracted so easily. Let me talk to the men for just a minute. And, and it's a battle for men. It's just the way we're wired. And when, men can be distracted so easily that the Lord is the last thing on their mind, right? We can be thinking about any number of things that we shouldn't be thinking about, and all it takes is a vision. And so what he's trying to do is protect his church. He's trying to protect his church against a problem that can be a very serious one. Uh, one more footnote to this. He's talking to Christian people about how to order their lives. He is not talking about the unsaved. If one of those ladies, a streetwalker, came into that church unsaved, then you don't worry about what they are wearing. Men, you just have to pray. You don't worry about what they're wearing. What you worry about is their soul. You worry about whether or not they know the Lord Jesus. And so the rules here, if you're going to apply rules, are not for the unsaved world. It's for Christ's church. And that's who he's talking to. The key verse in all of this uh, section about attire is verse 10. Look at that. Saying, here's how you dress. You dress with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. And so, how do we dress... As, as, and, and men can have this problem, but not nearly as much. Uh, if you just look around at the guys here, you can tell. That it's just not a big problem for us. It's a problem for ladies, and I don't see any problems here. But it is a problem for the ladies. And 
the testimony of the heart should determine how they dress. That's what he's saying here. Is that our outward appearance ought to agree with our inward testimony. Okay? That's exactly what he's saying. That whatever you put on should agree with who you say you are in Christ. And I think that simplifies it, doesn't it? And that kind of brings it down to the bare minimum. That our outward appearance should agree with our inward testimony. But now we come to an even more difficult section, starting at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, let me just stop there for a second. The same word is used in verse uh, 11, learn quietly. Verse 12, she remain quiet. And then look all the way back to verse 2 where he says that we pray so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life. Same word in all three places. All right, now think about that for a minute. The King James used the word silent. And, and uh, the woman should be silent. And that, that was a terrible translation because that's not what was being said. What is being said here, just as we're praying that, that we can live in this land in a orderly, peaceful way, then so women should adorn themselves and should conduct themselves in an orderly, peaceful way. And it, it's, he's not saying never say a word. That, that's not what he's saying. However, he does go on and say they learn quietly in submissiveness. And I, I have to stop there too. Attitude is everything. Uh, submission is first and foremost to the Lord and men and women. And, and if it, reading this passage, the one thing I'm overwhelmed with is the attitudes that come out of it. The attitude of submission to the Lord has to prevail in Christ's church. Whatever that looks like is that we're submitted to him. And whatever it looks like in the roles of men and women, and the role of men and women is not identical, regardless of what culture says. Women are equally talented, sometimes a whole lot smarter, sometimes more gifted, sometimes better trained. That has nothing to do with it. There's a, an article that I read in the ABF this morning by Mary Cassian. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her. Mary Cassian is actually the professor of women's studies at Southern Seminary. And Mary wrote an extended article, and it, the effect, in, in, she was saying, how far is too far when it comes to women's role in the church? How far is too far? And she built a very strong argument on that's an entirely wrong question to ask. How far is too far? Because the question to ask is, am I submitted to Jesus Christ? Is my attitude one of submission? And, and I'd encourage you to look that article up uh, by Mary Cassian. It's, it's on uh, uh, Desiring God's website, uh, John Piper's website. So if you want to see it, look that article up. It's a long article. It's worth reading. And it's really well-founded. Now, this is by a woman who has a doctorate in theology, who teaches at a seminary, but she teaches in the area of women's studies. 
And and she would agree with everything I'm saying this morning. In fact, I drew a lot from her. I I used a lot of her thoughts because she pegged it. She she was right on the money. Well, you mean I would listen to a woman? You bet. Some of the biggest trouble I've ever gotten in was by not listening to my wife, right? <laughs> Anybody else like that? Dave, you ever have that problem? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we we're stupid if we don't listen. That's not what he's saying here. And he's not saying to the women, don't give valuable input. I think that includes the home and the church. You need valuable input. What he's saying is, ultimately, Mary Cassian has an interesting title. She said that because titles are so distorted, she called them the church fathers. And she said that, ultimately, according to God's word, the church fathers are the ones who should be in the leadership role. Now, ladies, sometimes I just have to give you my sympathy. And I mean this. I mean this. Because sometimes the the church leaders are really stupid. I used that word of me earlier, and it can be. And, And sometimes you might sit back there and listen to a message, and you say, I could do that a lot better, and you probably could. I won't even disagree with you. You probably could. I didn't set the order. God set the order for a reason. In the home, the man is to be the godly example of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a whole lot of love. That's a lot of sacrifice. And in the home, that's the way it's to be ordered. God the Father is the head of Christ. Are they equal? Are they equal? We believe in the Trinity. Are they equal? Of course they're equal. In the home, listen now, just as God the Father is the head of Christ, so the husband is to lead the wife. Are they equal? Of course they're equal. They're joint heirs in the grace of life. And so we are equal in God's eyes of equal value. And men, listen, listen carefully, because men can get messed up on this. And Christ's church can get messed up on this, is that we become oppressive to the ladies, and it isn't right. It's not the way the Lord would have it. Um, I used the illustration, and it comes to my mind again that many years ago I went to work at Goodyear Tire and Rubber. I was at Kent State uh, and trying to work. take part-time studies and I was working nights at at Goodyear Tire and Rubber and when I came in all of the production jobs were union and the first thing that you have to do is go into a union meeting and they basically are indoctrinating you of why the union is so important and they go back to the days of the of the depression and just after when the company actually hired strike breakers. The union was trying to be formed, and the company hired strike breakers who would come in with clubs and guns and everything else to try to beat the guys into submission so they wouldn't form a union. And this was company people that were doing this. And so they had the upper hand, right? And they're going to control those workers, So those workers have to do everything they say any time they say it, or they don't have a job. And then the union came in. And little by little by little, the union gained such power. 
and such authority that the company, they didn't care if the company made money and if just a little lesson in, in uh, economics is if the company doesn't make money, it's not there, right? Pretty simple. You've got to make money. And, and they no longer cared if the company made money. What they cared about is their benefits and their wages. And so they drove the companies out. Now, what's the lesson out of that? Whoever has the upper hand is human nature tends to control and be excessive in the use of that. I believe that's true in the role of men and women, is that it can tend to be excessive and abusive. And that's not at all what God has designed, not in the least. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 says, uh, The husbands dwell with your wife with knowledge. And I think that means with a sympathetic concern for what concerns her. Dwell with them according to knowledge. So, not to teach. Back to that. Woman learn quietly. And I think what it's saying is that, the, that a lady willingly says, I'm going to sit under the leadership of that church and recognizing that that God has called men and this argument can be built from the whole of the New Testament I believe and that God has called men to be leaders shepherds pastors elders bishops and that that we willingly first submitting to God as Christ submitted to the Father and then submitting to the church I, I believe that's the role. I believe that's what he's saying here, and that's what he's saying in teaching, not to exercise authority, but to remain orderly, quiet. Now, you come to the last section. And I can't wait to see what I'm going to say about this. The, the last section, there is no agreement on what it's teaching at all. And... Sometimes the best thing to say is, I don't know. And so I'm telling you up front that I'm not contending hard for any view of this little section. It doesn't distort any teaching. It doesn't change anything. But I, I just wouldn't contend. I'm not going to the stake for a particular view of this text. Uh, I don't know for sure what it's teaching. And what I've found is, I'm not sure anybody else does either. I haven't found a very satisfactory explanation, but let me read it and I'll give you a couple comments. He says in verse 13 that Adam was formed first, then Eve. All he's doing is going back to creation account, right? He's just going back to creation and he's recalling what happened there. God created Adam, then he created Eve. He created them both and he created them equally. Same elements. He created them equally, not, not one to be uniquely special, although he did say that Eve was to be the helpmate, that there was a sense of subordinate role there. I, it's there. And, he, and when he reads this verse, you can't help but think of it. He was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. When you read of the account of the fall, which was a real event in history, when they chose to disobey God, 
Who is it that God holds accountable for that event? Men or women? That's right. He holds men. He holds Adam accountable. Look at Romans chapter 5. Who's accountable? Adam was accountable. Now, what happened there? I'm going to give you what I believe happened. Okay? The, the evil one came. And he presented something that looked kind of attractive. And instead of Adam stepping into his role as the leader, he allows this conversation. He's right there. There's no reason to think he was anywhere other than right there present. And he allows this conversation to go on between the evil one and Eve. And then Eve, instead of turning to Adam... And saying, dear, what do you think? Or how should we proceed? She ate. Right? Two problems. Adam did not exercise his proper authority and say, get out of here. We're not going to do this. And Eve usurped the authority that was Adam's. Two problems. She took the leadership role. And I think that's the first thing that this passage is talking about is that she took the leadership away from him, right? Can you see that? And that, that he did not exercise his proper role. They're both at fault. Both of them are. Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. And then it says, this is the tough one, she'll be saved through childbearing. Now, I said at the beginning that you have to allow clear teaching of Scripture to prevail over unclear. And so here's one thing that does not say. You listening? Listen carefully. It does not say that woman has to have children to be saved. It is not talking about woman being saved eternally, having right standing with God because of having children or having anything to do with that process. That's not what it's saying. Because if that were the case, if women didn't have children, they couldn't be saved, right? People are saved based on grace, based on believing in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Jesus died for my sins, and that's how I'm saved. I accept that gift. And I say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, my Lord, and that's how I'm saved. And it has nothing to do with childbearing or lack of saving. So it's, that's not what it's teaching, whatever it's teaching here, right? It's not that. Um, She'll be saved by childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now here's, and Mary Cassian has an interesting view of this, and I would urge you to go read it because it's worth reading. But here's what I think that's being said here. What happened after the, the fall to man, to Adam? Do you remember what the, the curse was that pronounced upon him? Remember, he said, you're going to labor and the sweat of your brow is going to make a living and it's going to be tough. Instead of him tending this beautiful, perfect garden without thorns and weeds, he's out sweating it out. Now, you can get the picture of that, right? You can see that. And, and so the difficulty of just surviving and living and providing for your family was multiplied because before... And boy, do I look forward to the garden again. 
I'll tell you, one of the reasons I look forward to being with Christ is that there aren't going to be weeds and thorns. You know? None. My garden is planted, and already there's weeds coming up everywhere. And i got to get rid of them, and I'll do it in the sweat of my brow. I know I will. And, and so I'm looking forward to the day when we'll be back attending a garden without weeds and thorns. One of these days it's coming because of Jesus. It's coming. And uh, so that was the judgment that was on Adam, right? You remember the story, Genesis 1 and 2. You can read it. And then on Eve, there was something different. Now, instead of her just having children, she's going to have pain in childbearing. When our kids were born, uh, who are not kids anymore, as you can tell, but we, I took Myrna to the maternity room door, and I said, see you later, hon. And I went to Perkins and had pancakes. And I came back an hour or two later, and she's still in there, and I paced the floor for a while, and, you know, you couldn't go in in those days. And so I didn't know what she was going through, and it's probably a good thing because I probably would have fainted on the spot. But I understand just a glimpse of the pain of childbearing. I just catch a glimpse of it. Never experienced it, but I have caught a glimpse of it. It's tough. And so that was what was pronounced on Eve. Now, as Adam goes through, works through that curse, works through that difficulty, his salvation is achieved in some way. I think that's what's being said here. Not that he's saved by doing it, but that the end result of it is that someday he's going to go through it and end up on the other side of it. And the same thing is true of Eve. That won't always be the case. You know, you're not always going to experience that. Now, I don't believe you'll have children in heaven, but you'll no longer experience that kind of pain. And so as you go through these things that make us realize just how frail we are, and how needy we are. And they constantly remind us of who we are. As we go through these things, then we continue, as he says, in faith and love and holiness as we move toward the Lord. Now, that's a terrible explanation of that verse. And I wish I had a really good one. You tell me when you find it, will you? But let's go back. First of all, it's all about worship. We are gathered today to worship, to honor the Lord. That's our purpose. That's why we want to be here. We want to lift him up. And I believe through his word, our desire is to lift up the Lord Jesus. Is to help others to see just how valuable and how wonderful he is. He's good. We have a good, good father. We sang that earlier. And I believe that that's the reason for our coming together is to learn more and more and more about how good our Father is and how much he loves us and what he's done for us. That's why we come. And men have a role in that. And ultimately, men have a role in the leadership of Christ's church. I believe as he starts out, that's in every place at every time. It does not mean that women can't serve in ministry. It means that ultimately the pastor, elder, bishop is, is a man. Um, 
exactly what does that look like in a local church context? Tough. I can't tell you exactly what that looks like. Can, can women, we, we talked about this in our ABF this morning, can women step up and give testimony to the goodness of God? Of course they can and should. Uh, there's lots of things. Can women share uh, about what the Lord's doing in their life? Of course they can. There are churches that won't allow that. They, they apply this verse in a way that they won't allow women to say anything in church. That's not who we are, and I don't believe that's what he's saying here. What he is saying is that they should not usurp the authority of the man, of the, of the elders. And uh, our elders, two of them are gone. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but Kathy's mom, Lena, who always sits right here, is in the hospital. And Kathy and Ron are with her, I assume, this morning. Kathy went in last night, if you haven't heard this. And uh, Lena is in her latter days. I haven't any idea what that means, but she has very serious illness. She's 93, and she is declining and so when we close in prayer, let's pray for Lena, but let's also pray for, for Ron and Kathy um, as they attend to her. Yesterday, uh, this has nothing to do with the message, but I'll share it with you. Many of the ladies prayed for our friend Stephanie. Do you remember hearing of the ladies that were in Bible study? Um, Stephanie was diagnosed in February with an aggressive cancer. And um, they didn't know the scope of it until March. And um, she went to be with the Lord on Friday. She's gone, three months total. And really was aware and right up to the end. Three weeks ago we saw her. She'd been out to a ball game with, to see her grandson. Wasn't feeling good, but she was out and about. But our prayer was that the Lord would take her graciously, and he did. So maybe it does apply. Here's where it applies. Both of these women, by the words of their own mouth and the attitudes of their own heart, would subscribe to everything we've said. Both of these women are on their way home or have got home because of Jesus. Both of these women have come to a point in their life where they confess Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life, and they're with him or going. And so what about us? Where are we in that walk? Can we say the same thing? If a doctor would say, you've got three months, three days, three hours, if he would say that, would we have the confidence to say, Lord, I'm coming home? May not like the journey, the way we get there, but the destination is wonderful. And that's the way we prayed for both of these ladies. Lord, soften the journey because the destination is spectacular. No weeds, no more problems, no more difficulty. And so if you're here this morning and have a question about whether or not if you breathed your last, you'd go to be with the Lord, this would be a good day to settle that. It's always a good day to settle that. And uh, we'd be glad to talk to you about it. Well, men, women, and worship, it's all about him. It's about our attitudes, our submission. It's about loving him. And then it's about just kind of following him in the walk of life, including in his church. Let's pray.
Lord, there are many times we don't know how to pray. We're not sure what we should say and how we should address you. But we come before you as people who are grateful, thankful, forever for Jesus coming and dying for our sins. Lord, we know there was a moment in time, a moment in history, when Christ took our sins to the cross. Thank you for that. And Lord, I thank you that as we look at the example of Christ and his relationship with you, with the Father, that we see a willing subordination and yet equality. Lord, that illustration carries into our church that all of us, Lord, are equal, created by you, equally loved by you, treasured by you. Lord, help us to see that. And then help us to live it out in a way, to apply it day by day in a way that you'd say, yes, well done, that you could smile on us as a church. And Lord, if there is someone here who has never come to faith in you, who's never taken a moment in time where they've said, yes, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, would you help them to see that today? As we close, Lord, would you just provoke their heart, move in their heart that they want to be saved? And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.